Chapter 1 of Acts is the prologue to the book. It's the very beginning. Since the book of Acts is a story about the church, in Acts chapter 1 the church has not yet been formed. As far as organization is concerned, there really is none. In fact, there is an organization for quite some time. And um, I tell you, I love the first few chapters of the book of Acts because, and don't get me wrong, but simply because they didn't have any organization. And they had to depend solely upon the Holy Spirit. They didn't have brochures, programs, and manuals on how to do it. They didn't know anything, and yet the Holy Spirit was guiding them. Now, as we've said before, the church is an organism. It's living. It moves. It changes. The gospel never changes, but the way the church applies itself to the world changes. And it's an organism, not an organization. There comes a time when you need to organize the organism, or you have simply a blob without organization. The world is filled with organization and order. God is a God of order. Yet, human beings have a tendency, and Christian organizations, denominations, movements, and any church has a tendency to move from simple to complex and over-organized. It always happens. You could follow any spiritual movement, revival, or denomination, and you'll see that's the truth. It just becomes oftentimes more complicated. By necessity, that occurs due to growth. If the thing grows, it demands more organization. It demands guidelines and so forth. But what's so beautiful about the early church is that they just devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, the breaking of bread, fellowship and prayers, and the Lord added daily such as should be saved. Very simple, very beautiful. And let's never forget that the church is a group of people. It is not a hierarchy. It is a group of people that are bound together around Jesus Christ, committed to Him, committed to each other's growth, and committed to taking the gospel to other people outside their group. When you have those factors, you have a church. doesn't matter where they meet. doesn't matter what they call themselves. That is the church of Jesus Christ. Now, we read... Last time we met and had this study, um, verses 9 through 14, especially verse 9, 10, and 11. Jesus ascends into heaven. He's gone. Their leader, who held them together and started this movement, has left them. Not only that, but one of the disciples named Judas was a traitor, and he's dead at this point. So there's 11 left. The leader's gone. 11 apostles left. Some women. The mother of Jesus. A total number of people of about 120 that are a core group. Their leader's gone and they don't really know what to do except do what Jesus told them to do. And that is wait in Jerusalem. The end of Luke, Jesus says, tarry or wait in Jerusalem until the promise of my Father, the Holy Spirit, comes. So you just hang out. And so we read that they return, verse 12, to Jerusalem. From the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they entered, 
they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Tonight, I have some things to say out of these passages that are difficult for me to share about because every time things of this nature are shared, immediately defenses go up and people think that you are attacking other people, other groups, denominations, sects within Christianity. And we need to learn to make a division right off the bat between people who are involved in a group and the teachings of that group, which are very different. The people may be and usually are very sincere. They love the Lord. And yet the teachings of that group are not correct or are unbiblical or in this case extra biblical. And there's nothing wrong. In fact, it's healthy to discuss those things that are unbiblical without pointing a finger at a group of people and calling them names or belittling them as people. But we, we always need to state that because oftentimes when you mention the group, people think, oh, you're making fun of them and you're not very loving at all. And this doesn't make a difference if you're speaking about someone within the church or you're speaking about a cult a non-Christian cult like Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, Christian Science, Unitarians that are not considered Christians but are considered cults and they're outside the church. No matter what group you speak about, you need to make sure that you love the people but you can speak freely about what they teach. That's how you grow. I was raised Roman Catholic. I thank God for my upbringing. I have a brother, two brothers who went to seminary to be priests. They didn't become priests, but they got the education. I have an aunt who runs a convent. She's a mother superior and is in charge of a large number of ladies. I was raised and steeped in Roman Catholicism, and I thank God for the background that I received as far as the general tenets of Christianity are concerned. The virgin birth, the deity of Jesus Christ, the bodily resurrection. Some of those things that embody what every Christian should believe in. They were put into me beautifully. I never met the Lord through that system. But when I did come to know Jesus Christ, I was able to use the foundation in the background that I received from my parents, and it really helped. Tonight we get to some issues, and this is one of the greatest benefits, folks, of going through the book of Acts slowly, is you are able to see the development of the early church in the Bible. You see its origins, and we can stop and look closely at things, and we can examine the church at large, and say, does this fit in with the biblical scheme? Because so many groups believe certain things and you wonder, now where on earth do they get that? And if you go slow enough, 
and you look closely and see where they got it and see what the Scripture says in balance, it really helps you to see how people think, why they act the way they do, why they believe the way they do. Now notice in verse 12 and 13, we read about Peter, who obviously at this point has a leadership role within the church. He stands up in the midst of the disciples. He's making a decisive action here. It says in verse 15, those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples Altogether, the number, the names is about 120 and said, Men and brethren, the scripture has to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, so on and so forth. After the ascension of Jesus, Peter takes a leadership role within the early church. He's a leader. But Peter never was considered by himself or any of the people in the early church to be the church leader, the Pope, if you will, or the Father, whereby all the decisions were made by Peter, nor were the words that Peter spoke whenever he had a conversation considered ex-cathedra, to be inspired by God, just like the Bible is inspired. In fact, the role of Peter does not grow, it diminishes. From this point, throughout the book of Acts, he is not venerated. He never receives any worship or people bowing down and giving any kind of special attention to him. In fact, Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 tried that once. He bowed down to Peter and Peter said, get up. I'm just a man like you are. Knock it off. Only worship the Lord. And as we go through the book of Acts, Peter, although he has a leadership role here, is not considered to be the Mr. Leader or Pope of the early church. Peter is considered the Apostle to the Jews. Paul, later on, becomes the Apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul assumes the role of the leader in the second half of the book of Acts much more than Peter ever could. In fact, it's Paul that wants to spread the gospel out and make it more Catholic or universal. Peter, that wasn't his intention. He wanted it to be just within the realms of Judaism. In fact, when God was trying to break his mold and say the gospel needs to go out universally, uh, Peter was not too hep on the idea. God had to convince him through a vision. And even then it was like pulling teeth. Also, in Acts chapter 15, there's a big debate that goes on. And the debate is whether Gentiles can be saved or not. And the final decision of that council does not rest with Peter, although Peter is a speaker along with Barnabas, along with or Silas, along with uh, Paul. The final decision is made by James. And Peter submits to James. So if anyone, not Peter, but James was the first church father or leader. And Peter's role diminishes through the book. After that, Peter is sent out by James when the revival breaks forth in Samaria under Philip's preaching. Peter doesn't send people. Peter is sent by the church, by James. So he doesn't take that leadership role. So the fact that Peter is the first pope and that there is a papal succession, apostolic succession, is neither historical nor scriptural. It was invented around A.D. 400 
when that thinking started coming into view by a number of groups, and when they said that now there is a papacy, instead of being able to follow it historically through Peter, they just made it retroactive, trying to piece names together. There's a very sketchy historical background. In verse 14, it says, They all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brothers. As we mentioned last time, this is the last mention of Mary in the New Testament. She's the mother of Jesus. She brought Jesus into this world as our Savior. But after this point, we don't read of her. And the early church pays no special attention to her venerates her in no special way, never called her the mother of God. She was just numbered with the women, with the disciples, but uh, nothing more than that. And Mary's role diminishes. Remember how we said Peter's role doesn't get higher, it gets lower and diminishes, gets out of the picture? So it is with Mary. In fact, Mary's role diminishes the very first public appearance Jesus ever makes. At Cana of Galilee, when Mary says, Jesus, they don't have any wine. And Jesus said something that wasn't disrespectful, but showed Mary that his authority was not under her, and he was not acting as the son of Mary, and that she couldn't have any special pull with him, but that he was the son of God, unique. He said, woman, what have I to do with you? My hour has not yet come. In other words, I am under the authority of the Father. I am the Son of God. And that's important, especially if you tend to think that you could talk to Mary to get any special favors out of Jesus. Because that's Jesus' mother, and surely Jesus would understand if you talk to Mary, you know, this is a real heavy issue, so you've got to talk to Mary about it, but not Jesus, because He might turn you down, but, you know, Mary knows how to approach the Son. Based on what I read in John chapter 2 about the miracle at Canaan, I don't think so. Jesus Christ was Mary's son. She was the mother of Jesus. But she had nothing to do at all with redemption. It's very important. And there is in Rome, you may not be aware of this, but there is a special cathedral, a church, that has a cross And on one side of the cross, Jesus is hanging. And on the other side of the cross, if you go all the way around and look, is Mary. And there is a group called the Blue Army of Mary. I used to get their literature. That calls her the co-redemptress of the human race. Who paid for our sins just like her son Jesus did giving Mary a position she never wanted to assume, God never gave to her, and puts that on the level of blasphemy, giving redemptive powers to someone who was not considered that special by the Lord. Jesus only paid our sins. And there is only one mediator, the Bible says, between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And you know what? You don't have to go through anybody to get to Jesus. That's the beauty of the Gospel. You go directly to Him and you go to the Father in the name of Jesus. 
You don't have to talk Jesus into anything. He's already accepted you. He died for you on the cross. And it says, therefore, in Hebrews, let us come boldly. Not, I don't know if I can share this with him or not. Maybe somebody else should talk to him. Boldly. To receive grace to help in time of need. Now that's an invitation, folks. And I would take God up on that. And you say, but who's interceding for me? Jesus, He ever liveth to make intercession for us. And when I know that Jesus is praying for me, I don't... <laughs> I mean, I love when people pray for me, but when Jesus is praying for me, I can't lose. That's something I really... I'm into that. And what's beautiful here in the book of Acts is here's Mary, the last mention. Mary is seen as one of them, not above them. No special place of veneration. Listen to Mary's own words when she found out she was about to have the Messiah. She said in Luke chapter 1, My soul doth magnify the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Savior. Mary had and needed a Savior. Now as I read the Bible, folks, I see only one group of people that is in need of a Savior. And that is sinners. Only sinners need a Savior. Only sinners need to be saved. Mary classed herself among sinners. Not as one who is immaculately conceived like Jesus, without sin, but a sinner in need of a Savior. And she was the mother of Jesus, and technically, yes, because Jesus was God, but she's not the mother of God in the sense that it's taken. She was never considered that by the early church, and her role diminishes from Acts chapter 1 all the way through. Notice also in verse 14, it says, the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. That's important because most scholars believe this is speaking of the flesh brothers of Jesus Christ. Again, we get into crossing over doctrines and perhaps stepping on toes because in the Roman church, of which I grew up, I was taught a doctrine called the perpetual virginity of Mary. It has no scriptural nor historical basis. It's simply something that was logically brought into view, thinking, well, you know, because Jesus was born sinless and Mary had no relations, it just seems that it was always that way afterwards when indeed it was not. Because we read in the book of Luke that there's a distinction. It says, Mary brought forth her firstborn son, put him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger. If it were the only son, it would have said, and Mary brought forth her only son, as it says in John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Unique only Son. And the way Hebrew people would record one birth is the only Son. But Mary brought forth her firstborn. And here is a distinction between the group, the twelve or the eleven apostles, the women, the mother of Jesus, and His brothers. Now I recognize that brethren or brothers can be used in a spiritual sense. We're brethren. But many times in the Scriptures, it's very plain that Jesus had fleshly brothers and sisters. That is, Mary and Joseph. After Jesus was born, 
without any sexual relations with Joseph and Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit and planted within Mary's womb, Jesus was brought forth. After that, they had a normal marriage relationship and they had brothers and sisters. In fact, there's a time when Jesus, mother, and family, brothers, come to see Jesus. Let me read to you the account in Matthew chapter 12. While he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, sister, and my mother. There's the distinction that is made. Now it seems that the brothers of Jesus Christ did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah before the crucifixion. In fact, they came to him in the book of Mark trying to take him out for they thought he was insane because he was ministering to the people. He hadn't eaten. He hadn't taken time to rest. They thought, this guy's nuts. He thinks he's the Messiah. And in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, they try to rescue him from his insanity. Let me read to you something out of John 7. In fact, you might want to turn to John 7. First few verses. John chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers, therefore, said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Now here it's beautiful to see Jesus has died. He's risen from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. And among the 120 in that room are his brothers believing. No doubt disciples at this point. And look at verse 15. It says, In those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether the number of the names was about 120. Group had grown from just 12 followers to 120 disciples, including partially the apostles. These 120, I think, are the core group because Jesus did appear to over 500 at a time, at one time, of his brethren, the Bible says. 500 those who believed in Him. But when it came to those who were really waiting on the Lord in obedience, there was 120 of them. Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem for the promise of My Father. 120 got together. Now that's not a very big church, is it? 120 people. Especially immediately after Jesus has been on the earth. That close to the visible, physical manifestation of Jesus. You think, oh, there must be multitudes, thousands of people. Well, there were later, but not at this time. You see, Jesus had many crowds around him, but not all, tons of disciples, because the crowd was very fickle. 
And you might have a crowd that seems like, golly, our church is wonderful, it's big. But you might have only a few disciples amongst it. In the Gospel of John chapter 2, it says there were great multitudes thronging around Jesus. And it says when he was in Jerusalem at Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. And he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. A lot of people were following Jesus because he was a breadline. He did miracles and signs and awesome things like gadgets. They just were blown away and so wow, they followed him. But Jesus didn't commit himself to them because he knew the heart of man. He knew why many of those people were following him. They weren't committed in obedience. Here there's only 120. Out of all of the people in Judea, in Galilee, here in Jerusalem, 120 people waiting, as the Lord said. There has never been the majority of people following the Lord. Although we call our country a Christian country, it's just not the way it is. We are a minority. People who love and serve Jesus Christ have never rank and file outnumbered the, the rest of them. We are a minority. The early church here, 120, it was small, not a, uh, a majority, but they did a big work. They were a small group of people, but they did a big work. 120. You're going to see this group grow from 120 to about 20,000 people in a matter of weeks, in the next few chapters as we read. Incredible growth. And you know what? What's beautiful, again, they had no programs. They didn't figure out a way. Now, how can we make our church grow? You know, there are seminars all over this country on church growth. How to get a large church. What techniques people use to have large church growth. I think it's really a farce. Because... Who really cares how big the church is? You don't need to have great numbers to do the work of God. You just have to have a few faithful people. In fact, the children of Israel, when they were going through the desert, had a mixed multitude. Some people right on, some people kind of in the middle. And the mixed multitude really ruined it for the rest of the people. So you have a small, faithful, on-fire group, and it's more powerful than multitudes of a mixed bunch. It always has been that way. Now, it says in verse 16, we'll just jump down to that. He says, men and brethren. Here's the first business meeting in the early church. The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who were arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his entrails gushed out. Peter is the descriptive sort, isn't he? And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem so that the field is called in their own language Akel Dama, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men whom have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John 
to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Now, I first want you to notice in verse 16, Peter's view of the scripture. And I hope this is your view of the scripture. Notice that he says in that verse, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled. Peter had a view of Scripture, and I wonder if it's our view. Number one, the Bible's accurate. And it's inevitable that it will be fulfilled. And no matter who looks at it and says, well, I kind of believe that that's inspired, but maybe that's not inspired. That is in contrast to Peter and the early church who believed that the Scriptures had to be fulfilled. When it comes down to it, everybody has a crutch. In life, everybody leans upon something when times get hard. A person may appear to be very secure and self-confident and wear a veneer of having it all together. But when it comes down to the tough stuff in life, when the carpet is pulled out, when there's no foundation, what do you lean on? Everybody has a crutch. And people always accuse Christians of leaning on Jesus. He's a crutch. You betcha. And you know what? He never breaks. The other crutches fall down after a while. Jesus doesn't. In fact, sometimes it gets so bad, he can't be a crutch. He has to be a bed, a stretcher. And he's got to carry you all the way through. You betcha he's a crutch, but it's one that will never break. And when it comes down to you got nothing left, do you believe the Word of God? All things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to His purpose. What a wonderful thing to look at the Bible and say, the Scripture has to be fulfilled. And notice also concerning the Bible, who wrote it? The Holy Spirit. For he goes on and he says, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas. It was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Even as Peter said in another epistle, holy men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Second Peter chapter 1. I want you to turn with me to Psalm 19. David begins by speaking about the heavens, God's creation, and then he turns and speaks about the Word of God, God's revelation. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day into day, utter speech, night into night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of the heaven and its circuit to the other end and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Ever go outside and look at the stars on a clear night? There's a lot of clear nights around this place. And you can see the heavenly bodies and you just think, God made that. I was bicycling home the other day from work and I saw a truck pulled over on an overpass. So I pulled over to on my bicycle to see if I could help this guy with anything. He's just kind of staring off toward the freeway. Well, there was a guy from the church who was an astronomer and he was looking at just a special way the uh, a new star would rise up in uh, the western sky. Just marveling at God's creation. You go outside and you think, God made that. That's an awesome message to me. But it's incomplete. 
It's a wonderful message of God's power, but it's incomplete. It doesn't tell us of God's promises to us and God's love to us. The Scriptures do. That's why David now turns to the Scriptures and he says, the law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple. And the word simple means open-minded. The statutes of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart, or literally the inner man. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. I guess he believed the Bible was his authority, wouldn't you say? that it was authoritative, that he could bank on it. The way a person handles the promises of God will tell you an awful lot about that person's relationship with God. If you see a person who's a a very fearful kind of a person, looks at the Bible, but I don't think it's ever going to happen, that speaks volumes the way you treat the promises of God as to what kind of a life you have and what kind of relationship you have with the Lord. Peter said, the Word of God had, this promise had to be fulfilled which was spoken by the Holy Spirit. I love that. Now, if you are an astute student of the Scripture, you'll say, you know, Skip, I see a discrepancy here because I've read the Gospel of Matthew and Matthew's Gospel says that Judas didn't die this way. So you've got a discrepancy in the Bible. Well, it does say in the Gospel of Matthew that after Judas betrayed Jesus, he goes and he took the money and he threw it back into the temple where the leaders were. And that the leaders said, we can't accept this money. It's blood money. We can't put it into the treasury. The law forbids it. And so they went out and they bought a field that they buried Judas in, field of blood. And it also says that Judas, after throwing the money in the treasury, went out and hung himself. Here, Peter stands up, and maybe he's just being in an exaggerated form, but he says, you know what happened to Judas? He hung himself, or it just says here that he purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong in the middle, all of his guts gushed out, or his entrails. That's literally what it means. He burst his gut wide open. You say, you know, there's a discrepancy there. One account says one thing, the other account says the other thing. How do you account for it? Account for it this way. Peter went in, threw the money in the treasury. What did I say? Peter. Well, Peter was probably around on the other side of town. (laughs) This is the new version. You've never heard this kind of thing before. I'm postulating a new theory. Judas went into the treasury and threw down the money. He went out to hang himself, tied the little sash that goes around his robe or belt or something to a tree to hang himself. And what most scholars believe happened is the tree broke, the sash came unloose, or it broke. Because of where it's located in Jerusalem, it is a steep hill. You can still see the field of blood to this day. Peter fell down and the fall caused... Let's go on to the next verse. I'm blowing this too bad. Judas did it. 
Peter died upside down. Okay, let's go on to um, verse 21. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all of the time with the Lord Jesus, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two. Joseph called Barsabas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. The apostles thought it necessary to replace Judas. Not Peter, Judas. Now wait a minute. Thank you. Thank you. You know, that's embarrassing when you want to say a guy's name and you say it eight times the wrong way. But while they thought it was necessary to replace Judas, later on, when another apostle dies, namely James, in the book of Acts chapter 12, the early church thought not to replace him. That's important. Because around the fourth century... A guy by the name of Epiphanius decided that there was this thing called apostolic succession, that Peter must have a successor, that all of the apostles who died must have a successor, and so we need to look back and find them. And what happened around the 4th century? is Someone in Rome said, I have found that there is apostolic succession, therefore I am the Pope now. I am the leader. Another guy on the other side of Rome said, no, I found the same thing and I'm the leader. And it was kind of tossed around between three people who said they were the first pope. It ended up with Leo being the first designated pope around the fourth century when the church was getting to be organized in that fashion. And yet we never read of the necessity to perpetuate the office of apostleship. They did it with Judas and perhaps it was a mistake. In fact, I believe this whole incident was a mistake. Some people say, well, no, it was important that Judas be um, replaced because Jesus promised that the 12 disciples would sit on the 12 thrones and would judge the nations. And so Judas had to be replaced then. I don't think so. I think what happened here was not the leading of the Holy Spirit. They made two mistakes. Number one, they prayed and gave God two choices. And that's always a mistake. Lord, show us which one of these two you have chosen. Well, what if he didn't chose any of those two? But a third one over there. And that's always a mistake. Lord, which of these two people should I marry? That one. No, no, which one of these two? Lord, which of these two jobs should I take? Well, don't narrow it down with the Lord. He might have a whole different plan for you. Secondly, they cast lots. And now you never read about this happening after the Holy Spirit invaded the church in Acts chapter 2. Because I think it was a mistake. I think the Lord had selected another apostle by the name of Saul of Tarsus, 
who would be converted, and Paul the Apostle would take over. In fact, he says in Galatians 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, not by the will of man, but by the will of God. And he makes it clear that he was an apostle called and having the same kind of credentials that the 12 had, or that the 11 had, excuse me, at this point. Now they cast lots, which means they took two stones and they wrote the name of one guy on it, wrote the other guy's name on the other stone, put it in a container, kind of like dice, shook it up, and turned it over, and they believed that whatever stone came out first was the Lord's choice. Now what's really wild, folks, is this was a method way back in the Old Testament. And it seems that in the Old Testament, God allowed it and controlled it so that His will was done. Now you think, I like that. I would love to wake up every morning and make my decisions that way. It'd be kind of nice, wouldn't it? If you were absolutely sure that the outcome would be the Lord's will, hey, you know, roll it. Sneak eyes. That's the Lord's will. You'd be doing it. You never read of it after this point, and I think it was a mistake. God did not choose, I believe, Matthias to take the place, but He chose Paul the Apostle. Now, I know that there are a lot of people who would love to have um, what they call a fleece before the Lord, something we get from the Old Testament. I'm going to lay out a fleece. Lord, if this is your will for me to go marry that woman or buy this house, I pray that you would just show me visibly by this sign, like Gideon did with the fleece. You know why that doesn't happen anymore? Is because we have the Holy Spirit of God. Guidance from God isn't a system or a fleece or casting lots. It's a person named the Holy Spirit whom Jesus promised would live inside of you. Not that you have to say, God, way up there in heaven, would you reveal your will to me down here on earth? No, you've got the Holy Spirit living within you. You've got a personal guide. And that's wonderful. If you were lost in a large city, and you needed to get across town to some special place. And you said, excuse me, sir, do you know where uh, this address is? And they said, sure. Go down the street five miles, take a right, go down for about three and a half blocks. You'll see this street, but there's a detour. Go around it and then take the second left. Not the first left because that's broken down and it's blocked off. Second left, go down about three miles, make a right. You're Okay, you're writing it down. Would you rather have him give you the directions or would you rather have him say, hop in the car, I'm going there, I'll take you there? You'd say, yeah. That's the whole idea. In Acts chapter 2, something new and wonderful happens. The Holy Spirit comes upon the church. From that point on, they don't need to cast lots. They can trust that the Holy Spirit is leading them. You know, I've seen people come up with pretty wild ways to find out God's will. I mean, pretty, pretty amazing it should be on TV almost. They're so amazing. I heard of one woman who received a brochure to take a trip to the Holy Land. And she looked at it and she thought, oh, I'd love to go to Israel. She had the money. She had the time. But she wanted to know if it was God's will. She prayed and she agonized, God, show me if it's your will. And she went to bed that night and she noticed as she was getting ready for bed that it said that the tour leaves from New York and you're on a jumbo 747. She said, oh, that would be wonderful. 
flying a 747 overseas. Lord, show me your will. She tossed and turned all night long. When she finally woke up in the morning, she looked at the clock and the time was 7.47. And she concluded it was the Lord's will for her to go to Israel. You don't have to resort to those kind of techniques in guessing what God's will is for your life. First of all, it says in Romans 12, you present your body as a living sacrifice. You make yourself available to God. You say, God, I am sold out to you. And you check your motivations to see if you really want to follow him completely, obediently or not. And you just say, here I am. I want to do what you want me to do. I don't have to strain and stretch. I just want to do what you want me to do. Here I am. Here's my body, a living sacrifice. Consecration. And then let the Word of God transform you. It says in the very next verse, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Learn God's thoughts, God's principles for guidance, God's general will that He wants you to travel on. Third is affirmation, the counsel of other people. Ask godly people, shoot by them the direction you think you should go in and ask for feedback from godly people. Not that you're leaning completely on it, but you want to have an affirmation. And finally, the peace of God. Does that reign in your heart? Do you have a peace about that? Now, those are general. I know that you've heard a lot of those things before. But... Be open to what God will open up, not through mystical signs, but by the Holy Spirit, one step at a time guiding you. You never read of this happening again. I hope you don't have to resort to casting lots to find out God's will. When you've got a personal guide, the Holy Spirit, who lives within your heart, and He'll take you there. He'll show you there. The Bible says, in Him is light, and there's no darkness at all. You know, we worry, as Christians, we take life in big bites instead of tiny little bites. We take it in chunks. We take it in in square blocks instead of steps. And God said the steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord and He delights in His way. And we don't want to just take one step at a time. We kind of want to take city blocks. And we want to know. Now, if I go down this road, you know, and, and we're worried all about the ramifications. And God just promised He'd guide one little step at a time. You don't know what's going to happen. Just do one step and be obedient in one step. Prayerfully and trusting God for wisdom. Generally, this is how I make decisions. It's not going to sound that spiritual, but this is how I do it. I found out that there was a promise in the book of James. It said, if any of you lack wisdom, as soon as I read that, my hand went up. I said, That's me. He just described me. I lack wisdom. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives liberally, and he won't withhold, he won't chide, he won't upbraid. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he who wavers is like a wave of the sea tossed back and forth. Don't let that man think that he'll receive anything of the Lord. So, I'm faced with tough decisions. I say, Lord... I'm going to make this decision, but I ask you for wisdom. I lack wisdom. I'm asking you for it, and I believe that you're going to give me the wisdom because you made a promise that if I asked in faith, you give it to me. So I trust that with your wisdom, I'm going to make this choice, and it's going to be the right one. It'll be your will unfolded in my life. 
I'm going in this general direction. I have peace about this step. I've talked to other people. And I'm going to do it. And I believe that this step is your will. Because I've asked you for wisdom to guide me. And I believe that you've given it to me. And I step out. And I trust that that step was God's will unfolding in my life. I trust that He's bigger than how I feel at the moment. Or bigger than what I can just see right there. But that the wisdom of God is much greater. And that the Holy Spirit has the ability to get me from point A to point B. You know, that's how I moved to Albuquerque. I just said, you know, it seems right. I prayed about it. Looks good. I'll try it. Lord, I believe this is your will. I've asked for wisdom. I'm going to go do it. There were times when I thought, did I make the right move? But I saw God prove that the Holy Spirit was much bigger than I ever imagined. So you don't have to cast lots. You've got the Holy Spirit living within you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are your, in a true sense, apostles, sent out individuals. We're on this earth for a very specific purpose. We have been born physically, but more than that, we have been born spiritually, born again, not by the will of man, not by the will of blood or of the flesh, but born of God. Born again. And because of that, Lord, because there's spiritual life within us, we've come to recognize that there is a very important reason that you've kept us around this long. That you have a job, an act for us to do. A place for us to be sent to. A work to be involved in. Lord, we come and we lay ourselves before you. Just tell you that we're available. Search our motives, Father, so that they are pure and so that our kingdom is not in the forefront, but yours is. And as we consecrate ourselves and place ourselves at your disposal, we ask that you would transform us by the renewing of our minds. Change us, Lord. Some of us need just bench time, sitting and learning and being transformed in the way we think. And Father, I pray that you'd put godly people around us to whom we can be very vulnerable and open, who can see our blind spots, whom we can bounce things off of in conversation and expect godly feedback. And Lord, send the peace of the Holy Spirit that passes all understanding. We trust in you, Lord. I pray that we won't settle for anything less than finding out what you want for us. Just gently guide us along. And Lord, it's wonderful to know that you are our shepherd. There's nothing that we lack. In Jesus' name, amen.